Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, Intimate Lies in the Law, a conversation with author Professor Jill Hasday and Hennepin County Judge Charlene Hatcher, discusses Professor Jill Hasday's book, Intimate Lies in the Law, and how it details the hidden body of law governing deception and dating sex, marriage, and family life. This webinar discussion was recorded on February 15, 2022. It is also available for viewing on the Minnesota Law YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law Podcast feed on SoundCloud or via your preferred podcast network for more Law Talk episodes as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Good afternoon, everyone. I am so pleased to welcome you to today's CLE, Intimate Lies and the Law, a conversation with Professor Jill Hasday and Minnesota District Court Judge Charlene Hatcher. I, along with Jay Brunko, Minnesota class of 2004, and the CEO at Indian Capital Company, Indian Land Capital Company, are represented of the United of the University of Minnesota Law School's Academic Engagement Committee. My name is Nancy Brazel, and I'm a United States District Court Judge. And again, I want to welcome you. We're pleased as a committee to host today's event. We're honored to have two distinguished speakers here today. I want to introduce them briefly in a moment, and then I'll turn it over to them. I also need to let you know that today's webinar is being recorded, and the link to that recording will be shared via email uh, and following the event. It'll be on the events page. We have live audio captioning enabled, um, so you just need to click on live transcript if you need that. That's a feature at the bottom of your Zoom screen. At the end of the program at one o'clock, we'll um, end to address questions that you can submit. So I welcome you to submit questions to our speakers. You can do that through the Q&A feature that's found at the bottom of your Zoom screen. And if your Zoom screen isn't uh, full screen, it'll you can click on that three dots more button and that'll, you'll find the Q&A. Um, so we'll take as many questions as we can at the end of the program. Let me introduce our distinguished speakers here today. Our first speaker is Professor Jill Hasday of the University of Minnesota Law School. She is the author of Intimate Lies in the Law. Professor Hasday teaches and writes about anti-discrimination law, constitutional law, family law, and legal history. She's written two books. Uh, the first is Family Law Reimagined. That was published by Harvard University Press in 2014. And the second is the one we're here to discuss today, and that is Intimate Lies in the Law, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. It won the Scribes Book Award for the best work of legal scholarship published during the previous year. Um, and the Forward Indies Book of the Year Award for Family and Relationships. So um, an, a well-awarded uh, book by a well-awarded professor. Professor Hasday has her BA from Yale University in 1994, her JD from Yale as well. She joined the University of Minnesota Law School as a tenured faculty member in 2005. In 2014, Professor Hasday became a distinguished McKnight University professor 
which the University of Minnesota awards to honor its most distinguished and highest achieving mid-year faculty, mid-career faculty. And in 2018, Professor Hasday won the Kenyan Tenured Teacher of the Year Award, which is quite an honor as well. Our second speaker is the Honorable Charlene Hatcher, who is the presiding judge of the Family Law Court in Minnesota's 4th Judicial District. I had the honor of serving with Judge Hatcher when I was in the 4th Judicial District as well. Um, The 4th Judicial District serves Hennepin County. Judge Hatcher received her BA from the University of Minnesota and her JD from William Mitchell College of Law. She has held positions at Robbins Kaplan, the officer of the Minnesota Attorney General, as counsel at H.B. Fuller Company and the Hennepin County Attorney's Office just prior to her appointment to the bench. She was the managing attorney for the Human Services Division. She was appointed by Governor Mark Dayton in 2016, elected to another term in 2018. And as the presiding judge of the Family Law Court in Hennepin County, Judge Hatcher oversees cases related to child custody and the division of assets and all aspects of divorce. I want to thank them both for agreeing to present today. I want to thank you all for being here. I look forward to this conversation. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Professor Hasday. Okay. Um, Thanks so much for coming. I'm delighted to be here. I'd like to thank the Academic Engagement Committee for organizing this and Judge Brazel for that introduction. I'm really looking forward to Judge Hatcher's uh, comments. Okay. So my book is about deception in dating, sex, marriage, and family life, and the law's response to this duplicity, which is usually to deny remedies to deceived intimates and protect their deceivers. By deception, I mean intentional acts or omissions that are designed to make someone else believe something the deceiver thinks is untrue. Deception can take many forms, including lies and deliberate omissions designed to mislead. I argue that deception in intimate relationships is a persistent and pervasive source of injury that the law has largely left unredressed. I want to give deceived intimates access to the same legal remedies they would have if deceived outside of intimacy. And I also think the law should work to counter the incentives to deceive and should look for opportunities to thwart deceptive intimates from carrying out their plans. I know this is gonna make my talk less exciting, but I'll say at the outset, my book is not a how-to guide, how to get away with deceiving your intimate, and it's not a memoir about my own personal life. Okay, so with your expectations lowered, I thought I would provide a brief overview of the book before getting to my proposals for changing the law. Part one of the book looks at intimate deception as a social phenomenon, intimate deception in the world. This part focuses on three questions. The first is, why do people deceive their intimates? Courts sometimes discount the significance of deception to intimate relationships, but there can be tremendous concrete incentives to deceive. For example, people use deceit to lure someone into a relationship or to keep her there, to drain an intimate's bank account, or to use her to secure government benefits, to control an intimate, or to resist his domination. The second question part one asks is, why does intimate deception succeed in duping people? Courts and commentators like to blame duped intimates for having been fooled. 
One reason for this is hindsight bias, which makes events seem much more likely to occur once we know they actually happened. Moreover, it's comforting to believe that only the particularly stupid and gullible can fall for intimate deception because then we're safe since we're also smart and savvy. But it's much harder to spot deception than we'd like to think, perhaps especially deception by an intimate. Even if you're suspicious, moreover, strong social norms urge us to trust your intimates and not investigate them. And even if you want to investigate despite those norms, that's hard to accomplish without being caught. There are many practical obstacles to investigating without the person finding out. If you follow someone or search for their garbage, they may spot you. And there are many legal obstacles to investigating without consent. There's a real irony here. Courts blame intimates for not investigating when the law itself makes investigation much more difficult. There's laws against snooping through someone's email or tax returns or credit reports, and for good reason. The third question part one asks is, what harms can intimate deception inflict? The injuries range, but they can be severe, even life-altering. They include financial losses, illnesses and infections, violations of sexual autonomy and bodily integrity, lost time, missed opportunities, and of course, psychological and emotional pain, distress, and devastation. So part one of the book is about the social phenomenon of intimate deception. Part two looks at how the law currently regulates intimate deception and how this regulation has changed over time. I start part two by discussing why some important remedies for intimate deception disappeared over the course of the 20th century or became much less important. At least three factors explain this contraction. The first is that starting in 1935, states passed a wave of anti-HARPAM laws prohibiting suits for seduction or breach of promise to marry. Courts have subsequently interpreted these anti-HARPAM laws very broadly. If you were once engaged and didn't get married, courts won't let you sue your former fiance for any claim involving deception, even if unrelated to the broken engagement itself. Indeed, some courts have interpreted statutory prohibitions on breach of promise to marry suits broadly enough to prevent litigation between people who actually married where no promise to marry was breached at all. The second factor explaining the diminution in remedies for intimate deception over the course of the 20th century is that changing norms about race and gender made some intimate deception claims unacceptable to the judiciary. For instance, courts are no longer receptive to intimate deception suits revolving around alleged deception about race. The third, though, and most important factor, diminishing the importance of the remedies available for intimate deception over the course of the 20th century, was the advent of no-fault divorce. Fewer people bring intimate deception claims to court because you no longer have to prove deceit to escape an unhappy marriage. Moreover, courts sometimes bar people from suing an allegedly deceptive spouse on the theory that such litigation is inconsistent with the availability of no-fault divorce. I find that argument unconvincing, and I'll get back to that later. So after discussing this 20th century history and the contraction of remedies, part two then turns to three chapters on current law. In the first chapter on current law, I explore the judicial presumption that deceived intimates do not and should not have access to the remedies that are available for deception outside of intimacy. Courts routinely tell deceived intimates that they can't bring a claim for fraud or misrepresentation or battery 
or intentional infliction of emotional distress or the like, even if they can establish all the ordinary elements of those causes of action, because they were deceived by an intimate. You see this theme in cases about non-marital and marital relationships, and in cases about financial and sexual deceit. Moreover, courts define intimacy in sexual and romantic relationships very broadly to cover people who didn't know each other well or for long. Courts tend not to offer much explanation for this persistent differentiation of intimate deception. They either assume it is common sense or reference the idea of not intervening in intimacy. I'll get back to why I find these non-intervention arguments unconvincing, but I'll just say here that courts are intervening. They're setting the ground rules of intimacy and determining who counts as an intimate. They're just doing so in a way that protects deceivers. The second chapter on modern law explores another theme, courts' intense interest in protecting what judges see as ordinary norms of romance, sex, and marriage. When I started this project, I thought courts might deny remedies for deceived, to deceived intimates just because they thought intimate deception was too trivial to be worth their time. But in fact, judges think it's crucially important to leave commonplace intimate deception intact, and they have sweeping views of what counts as ordinary deception. Courts accept many forms of deceit as ordinary and expected parts of romance, sex, and marriage, and they help make that so, normalizing the deception by shielding it from legal redress or condemnation. So months of faking a pregnancy, even after the deceit helps trigger the suicide of the man's wife, court says ordinary intimate deception, no redress. A concealed health problem that makes someone unable to work full time, ordinary intimate deception, no remedy. Hiding that you have children from a prior relationship, ordinary intimate deception, no remedy. We're living in an era that tends to glorify marriage and intimacy. Think of the odes to marriage during the same-sex uh, marriage movement, but that's just not visible here. Courts assume that deception is pervasive in intimate relationships, even natural and inevitable, and they strive to protect that deceit. Sometimes judges will provide a remedy if they think the deception is sufficiently unusual. So concealing that you're married to get a new girlfriend, that's ordinary deception, no remedy. But actually marrying again, in other words, committing bigamy, okay, that's unusual enough, courts will give you a remedy. But even with unusual deceit, courts may deny redress if they are afraid about creating a slippery slope that could ultimately jeopardize more ordinary deceivers. The third chapter on modern law explores how courts regulate intimate deception outside of romance, sex, and marriage. You still see the theme of the law protecting deceivers, but only in cases about parents deceiving their children. Indeed, sometimes, courts sometimes write as if parents have a prerogative to deceive their children, including their adult children. They present this as part of parental autonomy and control and blame children for being duped. In contrast, courts tend to be very harsh with children who've deceived their parents. Moreover, while courts define intimacy very broadly in the context of romantic and sexual relationships, they tend to define intimacy much more narrowly in the context of family relationships outside of marriage and parenthood, excluding relatives like aunts, uncles, siblings, cousins, and the like. Courts treat these family members as if they're unrelated to the people they deceived. Okay, I wanna turn now to the last part of the book and how I think the law should change. I'll start by discussing how I would expand remedies for deceived intimates who come to court, and then turn to how the law can improve the regulation of intimate deception before any litigation begins. I argue that judges should start with a rebuttable presumption that deceived intimates will have access to the same legal remedies they would have 
if they were equivalently deceived outside of intimacy. In other words, if a plaintiff could sue a deceptive stranger for fraud or battery or misrepresentation, court should begin by assuming the plaintiff can sue an intimate who is equivalently deceptive for the same causes of action. Treating intimate deception like deception outside of intimacy would promote compensation, deterrence, and recognition that intimate deception can be wrongful and inflict substantial injuries. I think this approach is better than creating special causes of action for harms within intimacy. Intimate deception claims will be more secure if they're brought into the heart of the legal system rather than left at the peripheries. One reason I think heartbound torps like seduction and breach of promise to marry could be abolished, I think, is that they were special causes of action for harms to intimacy that legislatures could eliminate without changing much else. Moreover, treating intimate deception more like non-intimate deception means that much less would turn on how courts define the boundaries of intimacy. Right now, as I've said, courts tend to define intimacy very broadly in the romantic and sexual context and very narrowly in the familial context. Neither of these tendencies is fully satisfactory or defensible. In addition, treating intimate deception like deception outside of intimacy would allow courts and litigants to build on existing case law about the elements plaintiffs have to prove, the harms they have to show, the standards of proof, et cetera. I think the advantage of this approach outweigh the limitations, but there are limitations. I'm proposing the subject deceived intimates to the law governing deception outside of intimacy. That law isn't perfect, and deceived intimates would be subject to those imperfections just like any other plaintiff. For instance, tort law generally undervalues emotional injuries compared to financial and physical harms. Moreover, the rebuttable presumption works best to the extent that courts can find an equivalent, non-intimate example of deception. In some cases, courts and legislatures may, may conclude there is no equivalent outside of intimacy. However, I think in many cases, it's fairly easy to identify a non-intimate equivalent. Okay, so let me give some examples now of how the rebuttable presumption would work. One straightforward example is where the plaintiff can prove all the ordinary elements of a claim for fraud or misrepresentation. She should be able to go forth whether or not the court thinks the defendant counts as her intimate. One of the cases I talk about in the book is called Bonham versus St. James. Paula Bonham connects with a man over an internet chat room. And over the course of almost two years, they exchange endless emails, packages, text messages, phone calls. He extracts over $10,000 in gifts from her. And he also puts her through the emotional rigor. First, he tells her that he just tried to commit suicide. Then he says he's dying of liver cancer. Now, because the stories and the cases in my book, you know how it's going to end. Turns out he doesn't exist. Paula reports that he was a fake persona invented by a woman named Jana St. James to manipulate her financially and emotionally. Paula sues Jana in Illinois for fraudulent misrepresentation. And her allegation seems to satisfy all the elements of that tort. The defendant lied wanted the plaintiff to rely on her lies, the plaintiff did reasonably rely, and she suffered injuries as a result. But the Illinois Supreme Court doesn't let Paula sue. Why? Why not? Opinion rests on two key premises. First, the court starts with the bedrock presumption that intimates can't access ordinary remedies for deception. Second, the court's understanding of the boundaries of intimacy is sweeping enough to cover Paula and Jana Two women who didn't even meet in person until right before the deception was un unveiled. How could they? The whole deceit turned on uh, avoiding face-to-face -face contact. 
Under my approach, a deceived intimate who satisfies all the usual elements of a claim for fraudulent misrepresentation or another cause of action should be able to sue. Intimacy shouldn't bar the litigation. Give you another example. So another implication of my approach is that anti-heartbound laws should be ways, read in ways that reflect their actual text. For instance, courts should read statutory prohibitions on breach of promise to marry suits to only prohibit litigation that's actually about whether a promise to marry was genuine or whether the reasons for breaking an engagement were legitimate. The mere fact that plaintiff was once engaged to the defendant and didn't get married shouldn't bar all litigation between them implicating any other kind of deception. So I'll talk now about another case in my book. Susan Smith works at HR and Amtrak. She meets and begins dating Fred Wiederhold, who has a much higher position at Amtrak. He's the inspector general. Eventually, they decide to get married, they get engaged, and Fred tells Susan, Amtrak has a nepotism has an anti-nepotism policy. Now that we're engaged, we can't both work here. Of course, Fred has the better job. So Susan quits. She's never able to get an equivalent position somewhere else. Eventually, the couple breaks up. They don't get married. And Susan learns that Fred lied to her about the nepotism policy. In fact, she could have stayed at Amtrak even after they got engaged. Susan sues Fred for misrepresentation. It's actually uh, in federal court as a diversity case. And the court holds, you can't, Susan can't sue him on the ground that her litigation violates Pennsylvania's uh, law prohibiting suits for breach of promise to marry. Under my approach, Susan can't sue Fred for promising to marry her and then not doing it. That's a core breach of promise to marry claim that's prohibited by uh, the statute. But Susan's claim that Fred duped her into resigning didn't depend on whether they married or not. Even if they had married, the lie about Amtrak's personnel policy would still have harmed Susan financially by tricking her into losing her job. The court offered no reason to believe that Fred was so fabulously wealthy that if only they had gotten married, she wouldn't have needed to keep working. Under my approach, the fact of a broken engagement between the plaintiff and defendant wouldn't bar a legal claim involving deception so long as the claim doesn't require a court to decide whether a promise to marry was genuine or whether the reasons for breaking an engagement were legitimate. Um, so suppose Fred had duped another Amtrak employee who he never dated uh, into resigning by lying about the personnel policy. If that duped employee could sue Fred for misrepresentation, I think Susan should be able to bring the same claim. I'll discuss one more implication of my proposed approach. On my approach, parents would have no special prerogative to deceive their adult children. So I think it's inevitable that courts will treat deception differently when parents deceive their minor children. There's policy reasons for that. And this deception may also fall within a parent's constitutionally protected prerogatives. But once children are adults, courts should start with a rebuttable presumption that they'll treat the deception of an adult child like the deception of any other adult. This aligns with the law's general practice of ending parental prerogatives when a competent child reaches the age of majority. Okay, I want to turn now to considering potential counter arguments to my approach and explaining why I find them unconvincing. First set of counter arguments are non-intervention arguments. The law should stay out of intimacy. This is no, no place for the courts to intervene. I find these arguments unconvincing for at least three reasons. First, courts aren't swooping in without invitation. Plaintiffs are asking for help. Second, the appeal of maintaining the status quo turns on what's being kept in place. Here, not providing remedies means leaving injuries unredressed 
when the law would provide remedies if those same injuries were inflicted outside of intimacy. Moreover, and maybe most fundamentally, non-intervention is impossible. The law is always setting the ground rules of intimacy. Courts are already deciding who counts as an intimate and who doesn't, what's acceptable and what's not. It's just that now when courts are intervening, they're doing so in a way that systematically protects deception rather than helps the people who are deceived. Okay, another counter argument is this will discourage reconciliation. People will sue rather than getting over it and reconciling. Okay, so I agree that suing someone is usually a relationship ender. That's a word to the wise. If someone decides they don't wanna sue because they wanna preserve the rela a relationship with the person who deceived them, I don't have an objection to that. But I also have no objection if someone decides, you know, I wanna sue even recognizing that's gonna mean the end of the relationship. What I say in the book is that if a relationship is nasty and brutish, the law shouldn't object if it's short. Another counter argument is this will encourage um, deceived intimates to feel upset when otherwise they would accept their lot. They would sort of get over it. So I've read hundreds of memoirs and interviews in addition to every case I could find. And I can assure you that many deceived intimates already feel very aggrieved. Moreover, to the extent the law taking these injuries more seriously, encourages some people to conclude that they deserve better than to be duped, I see that as an advance rather than a cause for concern. Another counter argument is the floodgates will open. Courts will be overwhelmed with the tsunami of litigation. Okay, so floodgates arguments always have two parts. First, there's an empirical prediction about how many new cases would be generated by the proposed legal change. And the second is a norm of judgment about whether those cases are worth the judiciary's time. On the empirics, I think it's unlikely that there'll be so many new cases under my approach, given the embarrassment, expense, need to prove you suffer damages in a regime that systematically makes it difficult to collect damages for just emotional injuries. So I don't actually think there's gonna be so many cases. More fundamentally though, I reject the premise these cases aren't really worth the judiciary's time. Intimate deception can be just as wrongful and cause just as severe injuries as the ordinary tort and contract cases to take up the judiciary civil docket. I'll just do one more counter argument. The idea that the remedies for intimate deception is incompatible with the existence of no-fault divorce. So no-fault divorce was an important advance for liberty, establishing the freedom to leave a marriage. But no-fault divorce is not about making spouses immune from the civil liability they would ordinarily face when injuring someone. If that was the case, you wouldn't be able to sue for injuries inflicted through marital violence because your only remedy would be to get a no-fault divorce. That's unappealing and it's inconsistent with the fact the vast majority of states have eliminated interspousal tort immunity. Okay, so I think in general, courts should start with a rebuttable presumption that deceived intimates will have access to the same remedies they would have if they were deceived outside of intimacy. Courts shouldn't care whether the plaintiff and defendant are intimately connected. I'll talk now, though, about two exceptional contexts where I think judges should deny remedies to plaintiffs harmed by an intimate's deceit, and compelling arguments for other exceptions may emerge over time. The first exception involves situations where providing redress would inflict significant injury on a blameless third party, such as a child. The examples I discussed in the book involve deception about paternity or deception about sterility or birth control that led to the birth of a child. I don't think the law should hear claims where the plaintiff is reporting that he was injured by having a relationship with the child because such claims are likely to inflict further injury on the child in question. 
the same time, I recognize that deception, something like deception about paternity can inflict real harm. For that reason, I think states should seriously consider whether to implement routine DNA testing at birth, although that policy has a lot of pros and cons, which I talk about at length in the book. The second exceptional case where I would deny remedies for harmful intimate deception involves situations where telling the truth would have placed the deceiver or a third party in imminent physical danger. Many of the examples here involve domestic violence. If you're beating someone and she responds by deceiving you, crime your river. I don't think you should be able to sue her for deception. The way to counter that deception is to protect and empower people who are subject to domestic violence. Okay, so I've been talking about giving deceived intimates more remedies in court. I'll turn now to how to improve the law regulating intimate deception before any litigation begins. Avoiding injury is better than having a right to redress after the harm has already been inflicted. And most, most deceived intimates won't sue, even if their chances of prevailing in court increase. The law helps shape the incentives to deceive and should do more to counter those incentives. One strategy I think should focus on adjusting legal incentives that currently push people towards deceiving their intimates or towards deceiving people into intimacy. For example, U.S. immigration law creates tremendous incentives to marry a U.S. citizen in order to gain the legal right to live and work in the United States. The punishments for sham marriage now are the same whether the non-citizen was in cahoots with the willing accomplice or lured an unwitting citizen into marriage. But the latter type of sham marriages cause much more injury because they ensnare an individual victim in addition to just violating federal immigration laws. To the extent the federal government has limited resources to go after sham marriages, I think law enforcement should focus on situations where the citizen was duped. Another way the law can mitigate the incentives to deceive is by taking steps to counter the legalized inequality that can lead people to deceive their intimates. An earlier chapter of the book discusses stay-at-home wives who resort to deceit because their husbands refuse to give them access to cash. There actually is a how-to guide for such women. It's called How to Hide Money from Your Husband. It's not satirical. It's a straight up Simon & Schuster, 1999. Inequality can create tremendous incentives to deceive, and one way to counter those incentives is to take steps to mitigate that inequality. Of course, some people will still deceive their intimates even if the law tries to discourage that. So I think the law should also pursue reforms designed to lessen the injuries that intimates experience when they are deceived. Deception generally causes less harm if it's unmasked sooner rather than later. So the law should make it easier for intimates to learn whether they're being deceived where such facilitation can be accomplished without jeopardizing privacy, liberty, or security. For example, I think states should consider coordinating to create a database with all their public records on marriage, divorce, and bigamy convictions. That's already public information, so don't see it as a significant privacy invasion. And it would help just thwart deception to conceal that you're married, which appears to be a robust form of deceit in the dating arena. Similarly, Deception will be less harmful if the law limits what a duplicitous person can accomplish without his intimate's knowledge and consent. So the law should make it harder for one intimate to expropriate jointly owned assets without the other's permission in situations where safeguards can be imposed without unduly burdening ordinary transactions. Okay, so my bottom line is the law has spent too much time and energy shielding people who deceive their intimates and focus too little attention on helping people who are deceived the law can and should do more to recognize, prevent, and redress the injuries that intimate deception can inflict. Entering an intimate relationship should not mean losing legal protection from deceit. 
Thanks for listening. I look forward to Judge Hatcher's comments and your questions. Good afternoon to everyone, and thank you, Judge Brazel, for your kind introduction. Um, I'm going to talk to everyone, practically speaking, about how cases come into family court and how we address the remedies that are sought by individuals who come into our court. Our court is staffed currently with about 14 judicial officers, um, where we hear the gamut of all kinds of cases that come in, which include paternity adjudication, custody and parenting time, kinds of actions, marriage dissolutions with and without children, third-party custody actions, which can include grandparents and interested persons, uh, domestic abuse, orders for protection, and post-judgment and decree kinds of motions that include all of those categories of cases with the exclusion of orders for protection. With regard to those case types, the examples of uh, kinds of issues that are raised by parties who come into the court include social issues as they relate to children. Uh, so that would be paternity adjudication, uh, legal custody, physical custody, any kind of a parenting time schedule that the parties are seeking with regard to their uh, joint children. And that's regardless of whether the parties are married or unmarried. It includes property division. So for example, homesteads or any kinds of other real property that the parties have, uh, non-marital claims, business interests that either or both of the parties might have, as well as any um, uh, personal property or vehicles that the individuals might have. With regard to finance, financial kinds of situations or assets, we look at the allocation of debts and any stocks that the individuals might have, investments, retirement accounts, bank accounts or life insurance policies that they might have and how those should be allocated between the individuals. We also see a fair number of cases where individuals are contesting the validity of a prenuptial agreement. And um, again, the category of orders for protection are have various different kinds of remedies as well. Generally speaking, with regard to the fourth judicial district in Hennepin County as a whole, the majority of individuals who come into family court are self-represented. So I'd say approximately 70% of the persons who come into family court looking for assistance are either self-represented throughout the proceeding or become an individual who is self-representing at the time, uh, at some point in time in the proceeding. And we see the gamut of individual kinds of couples, which include, for example, same-sex male couples, same-sex female couples, transgender couples, um, heterosexual couples, um, sexual romantic relationships between minors, uh, which come up most often in orders for protection, which I'm gonna get into more detail in just a moment. And then also blood relative relationships uh, that can come up in the form of third party custody actions, as well as in cases involving orders for protection. And know that Professor Hasday has talked about instances where there may be deception between the parties. Typically, I would say, as a judicial, as a judicial officer who has provided, presided over hundreds of cases over the course of time that I've been over here in family court, I've seen whether implicitly or directly through testimony, situations where individuals are stating that they have been wronged by their significant other uh, based upon false premises. And, Thankfully, in our uh, judicial district, we're pretty progressive. I would say 
generally speaking, what we do is we have one family assigned to each family that one judicial officer assigned to each family that uh, comes into our court system. So if there is an order for protection, for example, between parties, uh, one or the other, or reciprocal orders for protection between parties, that same judicial officer who hears that matter, hears any underlying family court matter case that of the case types that I've spoken about earlier. We also have the ability to appoint guardians at litem to determine whether in instances where we believe that children are at risk uh, to gather information for, for the court to review and for the parties to see as to what is in the best interest of the children. We also can order evaluative services with regard to custody and parenting time and um, ready responses with regard to that as well. It is not unusual, and I have done on a number of occasions where I believe that there has been financial exploitation between parties. It's not unusual for me to, or other judicial officers, to appoint a financial expert to trace as assets, whether nationally or even internationally have done that. Uh, we also can appoint and have done on numerous occasions, appoint special masters to oversee financial and social issues as they relate to parties who come into court. Um, it, I would say in our district, other issues that have come up with regard to um, perhaps deception, whether it's implicit because of the pleadings that have been filed and the discovery that has gone on in a particular a lawsuit, or if it's through testimony that we've heard through evidentiary hearings, we, it's not unusual for us to even post-decree, post-judgment and decree in a marital dissolution matter for us to reopen a case and have um, an evidentiary hearing to determine whether or not there was fraud committed by through the deception of one or the other of the parties. And if it is determined that fraud has uh, uh, occurred, then we have a second trial to determine what would be the appropriate allocation of any assets that the parties had to address any um, any remedies that the person who was um, frauded in some way thinks that they should be awarded. So that's not an unusual thing that has been that has happened on a number of occasions of occasions uh, on my caseload and others as well who are judicial officers here. We also pay particular attention to the dissipation of marital assets that can happen throughout litigation and even prior to litigation. And for, with the when we review those kinds of things, we make determinations as to what is the fair and just thing to occur with regard to allocation of um, assets when we reach the point of judgment and decree. There have been a number of instances also where there's been financial exploitation between the parties um, outside of dissipation of marital assets or the hiding of assets. And again, that's we use financial experts to trace assets in those kinds of situations. I have also had cases where there has been um, a marriage based upon immigration and dissipation of assets or the transferring of funds between parties or withdrawal of funds by one party of the from the other. And that becomes you know, one of the issues that needs to be resolved in the litigation process and um, orders 
issued with regard to that, so far as a final judgment and decree is concerned. I've also seen situations where there has been um, deception used with regard to um, custody issues. And by that, I mean, I can think of instances where one or one of the parties used um, ICE to um, allege that they're the significant other, the other parent of the child was illegally in the United States, caused them to be uh, actually um, ended up contacting the ICE authorities and they were present. This is prior to COVID happening and everything being remote now. But in any event, this individual was arrested um, and was unable to attend their hearing as a direct result of having these allegations made about their um, illegal status in the country. And that took, uh, I mean, the court was the court was able to resolve those issues with regard to custody and parenting time. But uh, bottom line was is that that was used as a form of de deception to get at uh, the issues of custody and parenting time and denial of parental rights to the other party. So I guess I would I would say just generally speaking that our um, fourth judicial district family court we are very, I think we're very progressive with regard to the review of um, deception as it relates to family court matters. We, um, we have in place, for example, with regard to orders for protection that are brought by individuals, the petitioners have the ability to keep their contact information confidential. We have a safe at home um, practice here where it's honored for purposes of service. Um, we're gender inclusive with regard to pronouns in our documents. When we do orders for protection kind of hearings, we have um, remedies available for petitioners where, for example, uh, we can award temporary custody, we can award and have awarded uh, temporary spousal maintenance or temporary child support. Um, we've also given petitioners the opportunity to uh, have included in their order for protection uh, provisions that prohibit the physical abuse and injury of any pet or companion animal. Uh, can We can award uh, pet and companion animals to uh, one or the other party. We, we have provisions that allow that there cannot be any destruction or damage to property um, that is in the possession of the respondent in those kinds of cases. We have child retrieval um, orders that we issue where the, in instances where one one of the parties is attempting to withhold uh, custody of a child or children from the other party as a means to get uh, unfair advantage oftentimes in an underlying paternity or custody or marital dissolution action. Um, we also have the means to transfer property temporarily to individuals with regard to um, when they're being withheld from an individual uh, concerning an order for protection. We will order, for example, also uh, counseling and programming or chemical health or um, alcohol or mental health kinds of evalu evaluations uh, when we think that that is appropriate. Um, 
I guess the bottom line that I would say with regard to the way that we practically speaking handle proceedings and cases that come before us here in this judicial district is that we look at the totality of all of the issues that are raised by a party, um, whether it be a, a custody and parenting time action where an individual individuals are not married and so they don't have the the, perhaps some of the protections that you might have if you were going through a marital dissolution, we yet and still review those issues and and try to make determinations that are equitable and just with regard to each of the parties involved. So I think um, one of the other things that I wanted to mention too is that here we have, I know that some of the actions that were that were stated relate to um, perhaps tort actions, and that would be more a civil branch of our judicial district that, that would handle those kinds of cases. But in the realm of family court, we deal with all of, all of the things that you might imagine that could come up in the context of marital relationships, whether or not deception has been involved or not, and also parental relationships where um, parties are have never been married, but have assets together and children together and those kinds of things need to be uh, separated uh, in a way that is going to be in the best interest of the children that are involved uh, and are being parented by the individuals who are um, unmarried. So I think with that being said, I have given most of the information in a general overview of, of how we handle cases here in the fourth judicial district. And I don't know if there are other, or if there is a response that you'd like to give Ms. Hath, Professor Hasday, or if Judge Frazzle would like to um, open it up for q and I'll say one quick, quick thing. So that was fascinating. I was really interested to hear that. One thing um, I saw when I was looking at the cases nationwide is courts were willing more often to give a remedy if the financial deception was during the dissolution, like you decide to get divorced and that's the day you empty out the bank accounts, because that's kind of like a fraud on the court. You know, the court is supposed to be dividing and here you are. But I found at least nationwide that it was harder to get a court to give a remedy when the deception was further back in time. That just seemed to be, I'm not, I'm not saying anything about your court in particular, but it just, that seemed to be like a trend. Like if it just happened as you're already getting divorced, they were more prone to than if you were talking about deception that had happened during the ongoing relationship. It seemed like the courts, well, many courts were explicitly, you know, we're not getting into that. It was I will, I'll, I'll just say, generally speaking, I have had cases where, you know, of course, when you're, when a relationship has gone long and there's a breakup, it doesn't, you know, the, there has to be a valuation date that is used to determine what's going to happen from that point forward. Uh, with regard to, um, it's not unusual in the same instance for those relationships as you're hearing testimony, either in an evidentiary hearing or in a trial, to hear information about what happened prior to the event that caused the uh, the paternity or the custody and parenting time action to be filed or the marital dissolution paperwork to be filed with the court. And that can be taken into consideration. I think we have great uh, discretion here in family court and in the state of Minnesota to make determinations as to 
what is equitable and fair between the parties, as well as what is in the best interest of the children. I mean, ultimately, our uh, our ultimate goal here is to ensure that the children are cared for and that each of the parents have the kinds of assets that they need to be able to care for them in a, in a meaningful and successful way. And so I can't say that I haven't looked at past um, harms, but, you know, there has to be a limit in my mind as to how far back. I mean, is that like six months prior or was it 10 years ago? And relationships don't necessarily end overnight, if that makes sense. Judge Hatcher, how does that look practically as you are hearing testimony in either an evidentiary hearing or a trial? Um, no jury trial, right? No jury trial. Okay, so what is the cause? What, what are you hearing? What kinds of motions or trials are you hearing such that your findings of fact go out and address perhaps issues of deception? So let me see. Let me think about that for just a second. Um, I will make the exception. There are uh, trials for paternity paternity cases. And so there is still a right to a, a jury trial in a paternity action. With the exception of that kind of an action, there are no jury trials. They're all bench trials. And um, when a complaint, for example, just thinking about a marriage dissolution with children, when a complaint, when a summons and petition are filed, then the issues that the issues that are set out in that um, summons and petition become those that follow through for the duration of the proceeding, of course. And then if those issues, if some or all of those issues are never are not resolved, then they become the basis for uh, testimony to be provided to the court and evidence provided to the court in the form of either an evidentiary hearing or uh, an evidentiary hearing, those typically are in situations where it's a post-decree, post-judgment post and decree matter. So that would be usually in the form of an evidentiary hearing. With regard to trials, if it's an initial determination as to custody, with regard to custody and parenting time in non-married couples, or if it's a marital dissolution, then that would, if it, the issues are not ultimately resolved, then that becomes the basis for there to be a trial. And at trial, it's not unusual to, of course, have both the petitioner, the husband or the wife testify, but also you can have all kinds of experts testify with regard to allegations of fraud, um, allegations of transfers of property or, or sale of property, uh, tracing of um, dollars that have been just we see this kind of a lot um, where dollars have been transferred from United States banks to banks overseas and then become commingled with funds that are bank are in bank accounts with relatives. Uh, there are also um, cultural aspects of this that enter into some of the decision making that we have here in family court. It's uh, we have it's a very diverse um, county. And so when you think about, for example, just using orders for protection and their resolution, typically European way would be to just have an evidentiary hearing unless it's uh, granted without any um, over without any objections to it being issued. It would go to an evidentiary hearing and then you'd hear testimony from parties who participated in that domestic abuse or saw 
aspects of it. Um, dependent upon the culture that the respondent or the petitioner come from, you may have elders involved and they may help to try to help the parties mediate the issues that arise with regard to that. With regard to um, transfers of, of money and commingling of the same in other um, countries, sometimes there are cultural norms that are being followed so far as say, for example, um, in certain cultures, the youngest son is responsible for making sure that the parents um, have enough finances to uh, run their homes. And so then that becomes part of a basis for there to be um, testimony received. I have received testimony with regard to that kind of an issue, if that answers your question. Um, for either of you, I have a question. Do you uh, that came in through the Q&A. Do either of you have additional thoughts on the practical ability of a court to try deception claims between intimate partners? Sort of wh what would that look like and what would the standard of proof uh, be in so such a claim? Under my proposal, it's exactly the same as what the existing cause of that. One of the reasons I want to do it is it's not, it's nothing new under the sun. It's if you're a state that has some tort for fraudulent misrepresentation, you can go forward. It's whatever the standard of review is. It's whatever the elements that are already established. It's just saying that the fact that you're an intimate shouldn't be a, a bar to you. You can now, and I, and the other thing I'll say about it is I don't think so many of these cases are easy to win because in general, tort law is pretty hostile. Well, it's hard, you know, they're, they're hard. Um, that said, some of them, the people have very good proof. And often, something I didn't really quite realize before I started the book is that often emotional injury and financial injury are very intertwined. So even if emotional injury may be what's motivating the litigation, I think often emotions actually are what is why people are willing to go to court. They have very well-documented financial injuries. So I think, yes, most people aren't going to sue. Most people who sue would have difficulties just like any other plaintiff, but it would be the same causes of action. And if they can make their case, they can, just like anyone else. Do you think there are special types of challenges or hurdles that come with these types of cases um, that make it harder in these types of cases to meet the standard of proof? One, I think one obvious ch challenge is that in intimacy, you may be less likely to have written documents. In some ways, though, the rise of text messaging is kind of a counter, which is so in some ways, maybe someone more like my ear right, would all be verbal. But actually, a lot of these cases it's very clear. It's text, text, text. Like you can literally see minute by minute what they're saying to each other and how they're uh, responding. But that tends to be an obstacle in intimate cases in that the what exactly was said and why is not uh, clear. But I don't think the fact of an evidentiary hurdle as a general matter should preclude situations where actually you have the evidence. Almost all tort claims, it's hard, right? It's hard to win these claims. But the idea is if you have the evidence, why can't you go forward? Recognizing that most people, that's why I don't think there's going to be a tsunami of cases. Most people, they, they're not going to have something that can fit into a cause of action. They're not going to be able to convince the lawyer to represent them. But if they have something where a lawyer would be willing to represent them because they have good evidence and the person they're suing has enough money to pay, I don't think intimacy should be the bar. I would just say also with regard to evidence, I would with you would be surprised, perhaps not, uh, at the amount of evidence that folks are able to accumulate just on social media. So it's not unusual for folks are recording each other. 
they are also posting things live on Facebook and are recording that. They are taking screenshots of uh, social media sites and providing that. And um, TikToks, I mean, it's the it's like it's a there's a there's a, a fair amount of evidence that we receive that's just and when you think about it being presented by a, a pro se or self-represented litigant in a very savvy kind of a way they're able to like trace it step by step by step so i would imagine that if they were doing that in in the civil context with regard to torts they could do a similar thing the problem would be whether or not i don't know what the standard of proof would be in that kind of a setting of whether or not the legislature would think that that it should be somehow different than what is the norm or what is currently uh, the standard of proof in those kinds of cases. The other thing I want to say, though, is that there are laws against spying on people, and there are people who thought their intimates were deceiving them that have themselves gotten into trouble for the snooping. So I don't want you to take my book as, you know, snoop away, right? Many states, you can't record unless you have two-party consent. So you just have to be very careful that your investigation doesn't itself end up in evidence. One of the ironies here is courts are always saying you should have learned, and then also you should have better proof, but the law itself for good reasons is an obstacle. So certainly you can look at your joint tax returns, but you can't look at someone's tax returns you're not a party of. So I just think there, there's more evidence than you think, but people have to be careful in gathering it. Professor Hesse, one of the other questions is you talked about a rebuttable presumption. If there's a rebuttable presumption that intimate deception be tried as deception outside of intimacy, what in your review of cases um, does the rebuttals look like? Well, I, that's the two examples I have are where it would harm a third party, where telling the truth would have put the person in jeopardy. I guess another example is like where you're deceiving a minor child that is basically under your legal uh, control, but I would want, but I mean, the plaintiffs can come or the defendant can come forward with some argument, but my idea is that in general, courts shouldn't be asking, is this an intimate relationship or it's not, it should just be, it's a cause of action. The fact that you were once engaged or not, it just doesn't matter. Can you prove misrepresentation? Just so to go back to that Amtrak case, I'm not saying she's going to win. She still has to prove that he lied. He knew it was a lie. He was tricking her, you know, that he might've been legitimately mistaken. It's not gonna be so easy to win, but I don't think the mere fact they were once engaged should prevent her from bringing the claim. That's that's all That's all I wanna say. And are you aware of states that um, have either repealed or, or um, somehow gotten around the intimate exception to ordinary torts? There are individual examples of cases that I certainly like and I think are doing the right thing, but I haven't found a state or a region of the country where you can say, oh, this is different. To me, this is a theme that runs the law, not, but not every case all the time. But it's just, a, it's just a theme you see over and over again, even though it's not every case, every time. And Judge Hatcher, to you, I, one of the things that strikes me about the difference between family court and civil court um, and the kinds of decisions that you're making and the parties who come before you is in family court, there's an enormous um, percentage of folks who are self-represented in family court, which is not necessarily true when you bring a tort claim in civil court. Do you do you have an estimate of in your court how what percentage of parties are self-represented? It's greater than seventy percent. So we have a 
it's greater than 70% that folks are self-represented either throughout the entire proceeding or become self-represented at some point during the proceeding. And then on top of that, you layer that um, not everyone is English speaking. And so we have a many, many, many interpreter cases. And with those interpreter cases, sometimes you have multiple interpreters because it is, uh, there are two different languages being spoken by each of the two individuals who are present in the courtroom. But then there's also, you know, sometimes there, and I'm sure you have seen this in your courtroom as well, Judge Brazel, Brazel that um, you may, the, the, a particular region within a country may speak a dialect that's slightly different um, and not understandable by one of the pro se litigants that you have in your courtroom. And if you find that to be true, then you've got to start, stop the proceeding altogether and get in, try to get another interpreter, which might be several uh, weeks before you're able to, to find another interpreter who would be available to um, provide those services. So it is true, the family court is, is a really unique area here for the fourth judicial district because there are so many self-represented litigants. We have our own self-help uh, center downstairs on the first floor that people could come in and, and get assistance, sometimes even in their own language if, they're, if English is not their native language. Um, they can get assistance that way in completing the forms that need to be completed. And then, you know, the process starts with the assignment of the judicial officer to the case. There's also, a, there's, here's this question. I'm going to, either one of you can answer this. Given the amount of deception over the internet, so we've talked about social media, et cetera. Um, there's, uh, um, the questioner says, I would imagine a great deal of diversity cases in interstate commerce elements. So if you use the- the internet both facilitates deception, but also sometimes facilitates finding out about it. You know, the internet can be a great resource for people to investigate. I think though, I think there's a tendency to think that intimate deception like explodes with the internet. There's intimate deception over the Pony Express. I mean, I literally have cases. Any way people can communicate is a possible vector for discrimination. There are some kinds of discrimination that really are facilitated by the internet, lying about everything about you. That doesn't work if you're both in the same small town. But there's some kinds of de deception that are facilitated by knowing each other very well. So one thing I learned in this book is that anything you could possibly imagine and more can be a site or a form of deception. And internet romantic fraud, or, or I mean, they call it romantic fraud, but but sort of those, those types of scams that come first to mind, perhaps, are prosecuted as crimes. And, right. And um, and sometimes there's restitution that comes on the tail end of that, and that's a preponderance of the evidence standard to award restitution in those cases. So ro romance scams, I talk. What's interesting about that is courts will often make a point of saying this isn't an this isn't intimacy. You know, it's it's the facade of intimacy, but this person was in a different country, they never met, they have 15 women, you know, they're on the string. So it's not it's not seen as an exception to giving remedies for intimate deception. It's just seen as a con artist, and there can be close cases, people who live by telling lies versus tell lies for a living, but that's the general idea of romance scams, which are prosecuted. There, the problem is just finding the person, but that's not seen as really regulating, at least as the courts talk about it. It's not regulating interstate, it's just regulating crime that takes the facade of. Interstate. Because the scam comes first, not the, the scam comes first. The person doesn't want a relationship. In there have been cases where I think the person is pretty 
con artists like, but there was evidence that they actually wanted a relationship. And some they're just reluctant to go into that. They, the classic romance scam they want is the person did not want a relationship. They just wanted the money, you know. Thank you both, RJ. Thank you. Uh, hi, my name is RJ Bronco. I'm a class of 2004. Um, as a reminder, a recording of today's CLE will be posted on the event page where you registered for this course. And this concludes today's event. Thank you all for attending and have a great rest of your day. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.